0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Turing's Triple Helix, the podcast channel for Scotland's AI strategy. I'm Will Millership, communications and events manager for S- Scottish AI Alliance. And today we're going to be talking about cyber security and artificial intelligence. So I have with me two special guests. First we have Rachel Greaves, the CEO and co-founder of Castle Point Systems. And alongside her, we have Kirsty Steele, the community lead for Cyber Scotland and the, at the Cyber and Fraud Centre Scotland. So. Uh, Great to have you both here and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: Brilliant. So we'll um, go straight in with the questions with Kirsty. So um, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and what exactly it is the Cyber and Fraud Centre Scotland do? And I guess I should also ask about the recent uh, rebranding and kind of, can you talk a bit more about that as well?
1: Yeah. So hi everybody. Um, I'm Kirsty Steele and the Cyber Scotland Community Lead, as you've said. Um, and I work at the newly branded Cyber and Fraud Centre Scotland. So this was formerly known as the Scottish Business Resilience Centre. Um, and I think the sort of focus of our rebrand is to sort of encourage, um, our journey going forward and who we're going to support. And it's a, a much more, um, ample title for the work that we are going to be doing. So our aim at the Cyber and Fraud Centre Scotland is to ensure that Scottish organisations are resilient as they can be against cyber and fraud crime. So basically, in the eventual, um, if they experience an attack or a cyber fraud, we can help support them. We work with a lot of partners, including uh, Scottish Government and Police Scotland. We try and get them back up and running as uh, quickly and able to as possible. And um, so it's our intention that we share our sort of skills and knowledge to protect themselves against these online attacks. And we do this through a range of different education and preventative training, as well as helping to sort of raise awareness of the current threats around the business community. And um, the Cyber and Fraud Centre is also part of a collaboration, which is called the Cyber Scotland Partnership. That's kind of where my role um, works in. Um, the partnership is key organisations that have been brought together across Scotland um, and we are aiming to improve Scotland's cyber resilience as a whole. So each of the partners bring their own sort of unique uh, point and resources and guidance and tools and it helps us to kind of coordinate and work together and push those messages out to the, the communities within Scotland.
0: Thank you very much Kirsty That's a succinct um, overview. And um over to you, Rachel. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and about Castle Point Systems and how you came to found the organization?
2: Yeah, sure. Thank you. Well, so um my background is in cybersecurity and compliance and audit. So I'm a, a certified auditor and a certified security manager and certified in privacy and records management. And in 2012, my co-founder and I started a consulting company providing specialist um, audit and advisory to government. So mostly that was for the Australian Federal Government, the Department of Defence predominantly, as well as other large agencies here uh, and commercial organisations. And um, we worked on a range of uh, initiatives and and most of our job was um, post-mortem, effectively, on why significant failures had happened. So those could have been failures in compliance, they could have been uh, failures in meeting privacy obligations, and often there were failures in cybersecurity. So uh, after many years doing that, what we recognised was that a lot of these projects and initiatives were failing because they actually really couldn't succeed and they couldn't have succeeded despite all the best intentions and there are always very good intentions for compliance and data protection Um, and it became pretty clear that there just was no technology to support that kind of compliance at that scale and we would have to come up with something ourselves so uh, we designed it and we conceived of a model that would help us manage all of the risk across all of the enterprise all of the time Um, And we took our learnings from auditing, specifically what not to do, what will fail, what always fails that we saw over and over again, and we made sure that we designed that out of our approach. So we ended up with a, a really a completely new paradigm for managing information and risk using artificial intelligence. And we initially used that ourselves in our consulting business, and then we commercialized that in 2018, and now we've pivoted to be a software company, essentially providing that capability to uh, central government and federal government in Australia, New Zealand, UK, and now the US.
0: Thank you, Rachel. Yeah, thanks again for your, for your overview. Um, yeah, you touched on artificial intelligence then, and so that's the kind of direction I want to go with the interview, obviously being the um, the AI uh, strategy and the AI alliance. So. Um, Firstly, I would like to you know, go over to you for the next question on what would you say is the impact of artificial intelligence in particular on cybersecurity in both terms of better protection and of larger threats going forwards?
1: Well, I, th- I think this is quite an interesting area within cybersecurity. Um, and I think one that will probably develop further um, as we go along in the, in the years to come. But... For the moment and um, you know organizations can use these different artificial intelligence or machine learning tools to help better protect themselves and their organizations so this um, intelligence could be used to help detect threats and make better predictions and maybe a faster response to these sort of attacks so it's able to process large amounts of data and help them identify what kind of patterns could lead to cyber attacks so it might be to spot malicious attempts. If they know what that sort of pattern might look like in the data, they could predict that and possibly shut it down before it becomes an issue. But there's also probably benefits within, um, artificial intelligence to sort of help automate, you know, routines that you would maybe do all the time. And that could also free up some cybersecurity professionals time uh, if some, something, some sort of learning could do that instead. Um, and, and. I've heard that some tools also can help, um, simulate and spot different attacks in an organization. So it can really help them identify sort of weaknesses within their area, things that they need to improve on. But I do feel that there is a balance that organizations can take for choosing what the right tools are and how they're going to be using them because poorly trained AI can have its biases. It can have its vulnerabilities, which can, which we're really only just starting to begin to understand. Um, the national cybersecurity center, they're the UK's authority on all things cybersecurity here, they've produced sort of guidance that organizations can follow and look at these sort of principles for them to choose whether that's the sort of right tools and stuff for them to use within their organization. But I think whenever there's sort of new technology being developed, there's always going to be potentials for cyber criminals, cyber criminals to exploit this risk Um And I I think probably the most recent sort of case is probably within that chat GPT form that we've seen. And this is a a tool that organizations or people can use to sort of help generate automatic responses in a sort of conversational way. So you could ask it a question and it would uh, spit out some answers for you. Um, But we have seen that this sort of machine can be used for good. You know, people can write code on it. We can save a lot of time. They can get really good and ideas for research and stuff, but this can also be exploited and that is what we've seen by some, um, criminals out there. They have used this to produce malicious code that could be used to spread um, malware across organizations. But I think the key one for me is that, you know, that tools that this could be used to create really, um, like strong phishing campaigns, so phishing emails is still one of the largest threats that we see within cyber security. Um, that's when you get those sort of spam emails into your account. It looks like it's coming from somebody that, you know, or you recognize and there is, you know, this potential here for you could, I've actually tried it to see how well it can do this sort of responses, pretend to create an email from say your boss asking you to transfer money and make it realistic. And the response that comes out is super convincing. Um, and I think that is a sort of potential there for exploitation within these tools as well. So I think AI phishing emails are probably, probably a higher risk of being opened because they're so convincing. So it's still for me, and um, it comes back down to that human element of cybersecurity that um, we, as people, need to recognise what those risks are and know what steps to take to better protect ourselves. So the tools there with AI are good in terms of protecting your organisation and, and can help automate certain systems. But there's also that you've got to be aware of what the vulnerabilities are, what the risks are involved in using that technology as well.
0: Thanks very much, Kirsty. Yeah, I mean, that made me think of yesterday I received a so-called email from our CEO saying he was at a conference and he needed me to send me his phone number ASAP and he was stuck or something and I get these constantly um well they go into the spam folder now we managed to filter them but it's these kind of things that um yeah the human weakness in the system I think that it's quite can be quite easy to uh trick people so Rachel, I want to see if you have anything to say on kind of the things that Kirsty said in particular, Kirsty mentioned, um, you know, that, um, an AI defense is only as good as the data that you put in it or as good as it's trained. And mm. the next question from me was about kind of what makes a good AI, uh, defense system.
2: Yeah. Um, training makes a bad AI defense system actually which is, um, uh, an unusual thing to say. You wouldn't hear that too often, but I can, I can tell you why. Uh, and it's because the kind of things we're defending, uh, when we're talking about defending data, we're defending against, um, very complex and disparate kinds of risk. So we have, um, privacy risk hidden in our data. We have intellectual property. We have secrecy provisions from acts, regulations, and law. We have risks specific to a particular audit that's happening right now or an investigation that's going on. Things that are quite bespoke to our organisation at a point in time and things that are legislated and legislation that is complex and can be old and can be convoluted to understand. So what that means is that... um, Uh, an AI model that requires training in a supervised machine learning way can't scale to actually address the real risk. So let's take, um, let's take some examples. When the Australian National University, which is my um, university that I graduated from, was hacked by a foreign state actor in 2018, Um, 19 years worth of staff and student personal information was taken by that foreign government, including mine. So that government now has everything they need to know about me, all my personal identifiers, etc. So there was a lot of risky information in that system, not just the PII, Um, but also financial information, bank accounts, also information about ethnic minority groups and the clubs and societies they were a part of that might have come from that foreign state and therefore were put at risk by that breach. And the ANU actually is the home of one of our strategic defence policy institutes that trains our next generation of spooks basically working in the Defence Force. So a lot of potentially sensitive national security information as well. So they got a lot of stuff just by getting this data. But the real issue was that um, I, had, I had been gone from there. I'd graduated, you know, 15 years ago from that university and they should have only kept my record for seven years. Uh, they had a regulation to retain my record for seven and then dispose of it. If they had done that and complied with that regulation, um, my data, and actually probably 60% of us who were affected in that breach, wouldn't have been in the spill. But the problem was there's lots of different rules for how long we keep this information. Um, Hundreds of different rules, depending on whether you were uh, this kind of student or that, or whether you had any disciplinary matters. Lots of different overlapping and sometimes conflicting rules. So we have many rules and we need to get an AI to help us apply the rules. So far, so good. But if we use supervised machine learning, the way that works is for us to provide the system with a thousand minimum good examples for each rule. And when we're talking things as complex as retention rules, of which for one organization there could be dozens or hundreds we're asking the business to come back to us with a thousand good examples of final approved versions of asbestos remediation policies. It's impossible it's just impossible to curate good quality data enough of it to train just one single rule and when we're dealing with regulations which might be secrecy provisions or retention rules which themselves are an important cyber tool um, or privacy rules or constantly changing acts and instruments that relate to our domain, there's just no way to train an AI with good quality enough data to recognise when the rule should apply. Even if we can do it at the outset, the outcome we're going to get from a supervised ML is going to be a black box. It'll be algorithmic and we'll just have to trust. The machine will say, look, trust me, you trained me after all. So just trust that what I'm telling you about the rule for this data is correct. And there's no way to unpick that and unwind it and understand it. And that's not ethical use of AI either. So when we're talking about how we get AI to know and understand our information and help us protect it in accordance with rules, we have to take a different approach to training that AI. We actually can't use supervised machine learning for regulatory purposes. And cyber and privacy is very clearly in the regulatory domain.
0: That's really interesting. Um, so what kind of, you can't use, uh, supervised machine learning you mentioned, but so what kind of, uh, technology do you use, uh, to be able to deal with those complex risks?
2: Yeah, so there's um, a different approach in AI that um, it's not new, but being able to apply it at scale is, is pretty new, and that's something that we uh, pioneered down here. So um, we call it rules as code or regulation as code, and the model for that is to train the AI on the rules themselves, on the regulation, rather than training it on the legacy data. It's just a different approach but what it means is something that's much easier to achieve in the first instance and much easier to scale and maintain um, it's really important when we consider how we're going to use ai to think about the impacts as kirsty said so um, what we learned uh, which i sort of mentioned before uh, in all our auditing is what will cause a project any project to fail ai included And one is if it's going to have a big impact, an impact on the user base. We've tried, we've all tried for years and years to get users to understand rules and apply them, you know, add metadata, save things in certain places. It's, it's very hard. It's a punishing job trying to get people to do that properly. Um, because if we have any kind of productivity impact on people, uh, it's very hard to get adoption. They'll work around it. So we can't have an AI quote unquote that actually requires human intervention every step of the way. We can't have metadata requirements, labels, rules, engines. Um, So that's the first thing. The second thing is um, we can't have an impact on the systems that the data is in either. Most organisations are running dozens or hundreds, sometimes thousands of separate systems. We can't have a connector for every one of those. We can't have an integration point for every one of those. It causes too much risk, makes a big tangle in the environment. So no impact on systems. And we also don't want to have an impact on data. There are a lot of legacy approaches to compliance that wanted to kind of lift and shift the information out of the productivity systems and put them in some kind of vault somewhere safe, you know, or maybe take a copy and put that in a data lake. Like, these are great concepts, but the problem then is that we've just doubled the threat surface. We've got two copies of the risky data now. It's half as discoverable as it was before, because where's the source of truth? Um, But it's even riskier than it was before. So we don't want them to have any impact on the data. We want to keep its integrity and, and keep it where it lives. But really importantly, we can't have an impact on the governance team. Our governance teams are very small. You know, the ratio we normally see is maybe one records manager per thousand FTE in an organization. Same for cyber. Just a handful of people uh, to stem the tide, basically, well and truly outnumbered by the user base. Um, We can't have a model that requires them to do more heavy lifting. Uh, We can't have an AI that requires them to be constantly feeding uh, supervised ML model or managing a rules engine um, or maintaining and sustaining the algorithm because we don't have enough of them. So what we need to do is focus on the, the value proposition of humans versus machines. What are machines really good at? Well, they're much faster than people at reading things. They don't get decision fatigue. They run 24 365. They can chew through a whole lot of information much faster than we can, and they can match it to rules much better than we can. Machines are great at that. What machines are not good at doing is making good decisions. Decisions always need to be made by people, um, but people can't make decisions without data. So the best use of AI is to do the hard part of reading everything, registering everything, classifying, matching, and distilling that information into actionable intelligence and showing that to the governance team so they can make evidence-based decisions Mm -hmm. uh, on clear and traceable intelligence so they know what they have in the environment and they can make good decisions about what to do with it. That's how we interface humans and machines, by using the machines to enable the humans, not the other way around.
0: Thank you very much, Rachel. That's a really Really good answer, a lot, a lot to take from that um, you event. You touched a bit on kind of adoption and, um, you know, getting uh, people involved and, you know, you can't rely too much and give them too much work. So I'd like to go over to Kirsty for the next question. And it's about kind of with technology becoming more advanced, um, you know, how important is cybersecurity, both at the personal, um, the business and the individual level? And you know what can people and organizations do to keep safe?
1: Thanks, well, I think, um a lot of people assume that cyber attacks won't happen to them or their organization. I think there's still that mindset that we need to sort of shift and to get people to sort of prepare themselves. And um, because, as you said, with all these different technology advances, there is going to be more risk. And um, I'll probably start from you know, an individual level, definitely people need to still um, put some measures in place to protect themselves online as their data is worth of monetary value um, to criminals. So it's definitely worth protecting them. And I think when it comes down to a lot of like the cyber attacks, the majority of them, people can protect themselves by just getting really good basics in place to keep themselves secure. And that, that also aligns to businesses as well. We're actually still at a stage where we're trying to get people to sort of just get those foundation levels of security, those technical controls, those good choices to better protect themselves. So um, individuals, there's a cyber aware campaign that's run by the National Cyber Security Center, and it talks through really easy, simple tips that people can do, and I'm talking choosing better passwords and updating your devices, these are two really simple things that are sort of easy-ish to do, Um, but that's where if the majority of people did that, they would be much better protected against a lot of threats. And that's the same for organisations. If they've got those sort of technical controls, then again, the majority of attacks they're they're protected against. So there's a a scheme that the UK government have backed called Cyber Essentials, and it's five technical controls that organisations can measure themselves against. And once they've done that 80% of attacks are, they're going to be protected against. So it's just trying to get them to that sort of, um, that next sort of base level to begin with that certifications is the sort of next stage up, um, you know, where you can work with cybersecurity professionals to help you make sure that you've got those measures in place, but there's things like the small business guide, you know, the cyber aware campaign that have got these simple tips that people can go through, um, but I think, I, I think it's, you know, the threat is still there, it's constantly evolving. Criminals are always looking at what the latest trends are on the news to adapt their scams and um, to sort of interact with people and to organisations. Um, so anything that's sort of relevant at the time, they'll adapt those things to sort of put that sort of flavour or spin on it. But the the methods that they use are generally the same. So it's still the phishing and emails that are still one of the the main problems. But I think what I would probably like to drill home to a lot of people is um, or organisations is to prepare themselves when an incident does happen. You know, what have they got prepared? Do they know who to call if something happens to their machine? Do they have an incident response plan and have they tested that out? Because I think those sort of Things are, are key that organizations should, should prepare for and um, make sure that they've uh, got that plan, tested it out. Do they have a backup of all their data? Should it be lost? Can that backup actually work? Have they tried installing it back on their computer? Um, and that, because, you know, it's, it's better to be prepared than it is to worry when it, when something like an attack does, does hit. And we, we have things here at the Cyber and Fraud Centre. We, we run a, a free incident response helpline. So we have got an incident response manager that will basically, if uh, an organisation is a victim, uh, they can phone that line to get guidance and support straight away on the phone. Um, and we've got good connections within uh, Police Scotland and other areas that we can sort of signpost and help them get back to, our, uh, back to running if they can do. Uh, because there's nothing worse when you haven't prepared for that incident to happen. And I think panic sort of sets in. So for me, it's all about getting your organization prepared. You know, what is it that you need to protect in your organization? What is it that you need to get back up and running quickly? First of all, what's your kind of key areas and um, testing out that plan. and, And There's lots of good sort of like training things that organizations can do. There's there's a thing that that we've been running called exercise in a box as well, which basically gives organizations a a scenario that might happen. Um, And it's all tabletop discussions. So I would say to you, you know, what measures have you got in place to protect against phishing emails, for example, and then you could have those discussions within your team to say, well, we've got this prevention method here and Yes, we've got this reporting element here, and this is what we would do that allows you to sort of see what have you got in place currently and where are the gaps and um, that you need to sort of address. So I think for me, the message for individuals and organizations is get the basics right, get those foundations into place and make sure you've got an incident response plan and test it out that it does work. Get your list of people that you know who to phone if. An incident does happen, and we have a good support system here in Scotland. Um, that you know people can call on for help and guidance at the time. We we work with a, a a group of um qualified incident response companies that can help sort of take you to that um next support method if you do need that support there. So, I think it's prepare yourself as best as you can, but we are here to help and support. Um should you need that as well
0: brilliant thank you Kirsty. you mentioned so many good resources there the cyber aware campaign cyber essentials the small business guide um and incident helpline i'm going to put links to all of them in the comment section so that you know our listeners if they are affected by this they can you know have the resources um
1: the, the cyberscotland.com website has a list of all of those good resources there. So it signposts people off to all those different activities. So that's probably a good one. There is a, um, an incident response section that people can kind of filter through. And there is that advice and guidance section as well. So it'll have all those good um, resources that people can pick up and, and make use of.
0: Brilliant. I'll, I'll pop a link to that in the description below. Um, yeah, as I, was, as I was just mentioning, um, they're doing the basics right. It's so important, and it is often quite simple things that can make a huge difference. Um, now I head over to Rachel. Did you have anything to add on that?
2: Yeah, I mean that's um, that's part of why Scotland has been a key focus for us. We're obviously an Australian company, and um, and we're growing the business internationally now. And while I'm based in in London, usually. We are building our tech team in Edinburgh at the moment, and a big part of that is because of this ecosystem. There is such a good focus. There's so much top-down support from the Scottish Government. There are so many great um, higher education institutions with a strong focus on cyber. There's an incredible pipeline of talent, and all of it converges into an ecosystem that takes cyber seriously and is equipped to deliver cyber solutions. So. Um, all these resources um, actually aggregate together to be something even more valuable than the sum of their parts. So uh, we're excited to be involved in that.
0: Brilliant. Thank you, Rachel. Yeah, um, that covers my next question on being involved in Scotland. Um, we're coming to the end of our time now. So I just wanted to kind of get some reflections from you both on um, what you think the next trends will be in the next five uh, to 10 years, either in the fields of cybersecurity or kind of risk and governance. So I'll start with Rachel on this one.
2: Mm. The big trend, unfortunately, is, is a bad one. Um, everyone's getting hacked. I can tell you that now, <laughs> and we will move into essentially a post privacy world where your information will be probably already gone or able to be gone at any point in time. Um, I'm actually seeing Gen Z get well ahead of the trend on this and start to just humiliate themselves on social media every chance they get <laughs> because they don't want to be, um, living in a world where their secrets and things they're embarrassed about can be exploited. It's almost guaranteed now that anything embarrassing in your background will be found and exploited at some point. So let's just get ahead of the curve, right? So. It really is changing our whole society and how we think. Every single time we have one of these significant breaches, it it shifts our thinking. And what is happening in Australia, um, which is actually one of the more mature cyber um, governance regimes in the world, is that we down in in you know in my home country have now made boards accountable. For cyber breaches and board members personally liable for cyber breaches we have a critical infrastructure bill which requires everyone consider critical infrastructure which now includes grocery chains fuel suppliers financial institutions hospitals mm-hmm. energy gas um, they've got six months now grace period to get certified with 27001 or something similar with the Essential 8, which is similar to what you were talking about, Kirsty, before, like cyber essentials, Um, and to make their boards accountable by August this year. So we're seeing this kind of sandwiching effect. There's pressure coming down from the top from the highest levels of government now to take cyber seriously and know that a breach is inevitable and there's pressure coming up from the grassroots where every individual now has been affected by a breach. We've had huge breaches in Australia just in the last few months. Uh, our you know, second biggest telco breached, one of our biggest private insurers breached, everybody's data gone. So um, what that means is in the middle, every kind of business, big and small, is starting to feel the pressure from both sides. From a reputational point of view, businesses need to be taking cyber seriously, particularly privacy. Of the information about individuals they have on their network, and from government and big enterprises, they're now more and more liable. Uh, and this isn't just Australia; it's happening in the US. Significant fines leveraged now for organisations for not managing their privacy and security. GDPR still lives on uh, post Brexit. You know, it's still a key important piece of legislation. So there's more and more pressure to um, to have that resilience. Uh, and be able to resist Um, but there's also more and more awareness that the likelihood of a breach is now very high almost inevitable and what we are seeing more and more is that the focus is shifting to managing the impact of a breach risk is as you know uh, it's a it's a combination of likelihood and impact so For me, and my risk appetite, I recognise that the likelihood of a parachute failing if I were to go on a skydive is very low, however, the impact would be catastrophic. And therefore, for me, that's not a low risk. It Might have a low likelihood, but when the impact is very high, the risk is high as well. And it's the same thing with data. The likelihood of being breached has never been higher, Um, what we need to do is materially reduce the impact. If they get in, and if they get the data out, what does that mean? Well, we need to be disposing of risky data that we no longer need to keep. And that means we need to know what data we have, where it is, if it's still relevant, and importantly, what regulations apply to it, as in how long we need to keep it and how we should handle it. And if we can really understand that, we can start to harden the stuff that is the riskiest, We can start to get rid of the stuff that we shouldn't be carrying. We shouldn't be carrying that threat. We shouldn't have 19 years' worth of student records sitting in our environment. But without artificial intelligence, we can't possibly map and manage the huge scale of information we have. There's no way to know what we have and what rules apply to it. So what we're seeing now is governments and regulators adopting technology like ours to really understand what they have and start to manage the impact and start to assume that a risk is inevitable and we will be breached. It's important to still do the stuff around the perimeter. Yes, we need multi authentication, we need good firewalls, antivirus, we need training, but we can never reduce the likelihood to zero. It's always an insider threat, always a zero day, but we can significantly reduce the impact and that's where the focus is shifting.
0: Thank you, Rachel. Um quite a scary, a scary prospect that we will all be breached. Um, but yeah, something we all, as, as, um, Kirstie already mentioned, it's something that we all need to be ready for. And so over to you, Kirsty. next, uh, big trends over the next five to 10 years in the cybersecurity field, do you share the same sentiment?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think Rachel's kind of covered that there. I don't see a slowdown on any sort of cybersecurity attacks and, you know, phishing has still been the most popular the last number of years. I take it, it's still going to be the case in the next five years for sure. And, um, and obviously when it's a phishing email that leads to ransomware too, um, and that might likely get deployed in other, other methods, you know, that's still ransomware is a key threat for, for businesses here. Um, in Scotland, you know, there has been more cases of that recently. Um, it's likely that that will continue, um, as well for the next number of, of years too. Um, and I think it's still that point of exploiting the user element as well, you know, tricking people into convincing them, um, that they're doing the right thing or to transfer that money across or uh, them not choosing the, the good security within their own, um. Password choices and that sort of thing, um. So I think there's still work probably to be done there, um, within the next number of years as well. But I think I think it's quite an exciting time too. Like you know, you don't you don't know kind of what the future is going to hold with what new technologies are going to bring. You know, um. Obviously, there was a rise in remote working over the last number of years, which we obviously know the reasons as to why that was. And um, so it could be that there might be other shifts, and that we we just don't know what what's going to come and come come at us uh, essentially and there could be more IOT devices being created, you know, lots of different technologies being um, designed to kind of help combat all different sorts of issues. And as long as um, these people need to kind of consider the security within those IOT devices, make sure that they're secure by design at the build and make sure that they're not biased or have those sort of um, Uh, vulnerabilities in them to begin with that can be exploited. So, um, I think it's hard to predict where, um, where, where we might see ourselves, but I think it's quite an exciting time. And as long as we're sort of ahead of it and where we can be, and also think of what risks might be involved. And when that sort of new technology is developed, I think getting ahead of that is, is key. And so preparing yourselves now as to what you're, what's in your plan and, and how to action that is going to be, it's going to be vital.
0: Thanks very much, Kirsty. I think that's the the message of this podcast for people is be prepared. And um, you know, I, as I said, I'll be sharing those links um, in the description for people to help prepare themselves. Um, but I'm afraid we're coming to the end of our time now, uh, which is a shame because I could talk about this topic all day. It's um, It's been really fascinating to speak to you both. So thank you for joining me. and. Yeah, I'll just leave it there, so thank you very much again. And it was nice to nice to chat to you both.
2: Thanks for having us. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Kirsty.